Hey everybody, Um, before we get started, I want to let you know that we are going to have a special part two of our Record Store Day uh, extravaganza coming out as a separate pod in a few days. Joe and I were lucky enough to get to uh, have an interview and a conversation with Chris Brown from Bull Moose, and he's the guy that basically uh, invented Record Store Day, and he's super nice, and we had a super great talk, and he addresses a lot of the issues that we bring up in this episode and uh, brings some much-needed perspective to uh, what I originally wrote about. So please stay tuned for that, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations. You've got a limited edition, glow-in-the-dark picture disc of the best musical podcast that was ever released. So today, we're going to talk about Record Store Day. But first, a little bit of trivia. All right, Joe, I am going to start trivia today. Uh, my quiz for you is called Over Under. I'm going to talk about eight of the most expensive vinyl records ever sold, and I'll give you a wrong price for that record. that was either sold for that or an offer was made for that, a legitimate offer. Your job is to tell me if my price is over or under the actual price. Are you ready? All right, the first record is Elvis Presley, My Happiness Acetate. This is a one-of-a-kind recording of Elvis's first sessions at Sun Studios on acetate. So I'm saying the price was a quarter million dollars, $250,000. I'm going to say that that is under what it actually went for. Correct, it was under. Jack White actually purchased that for $300,000, and he used it to, uh, he uh, reproduced it and duplicated it for a Third Man Records, actually a Record Store Day release. So good job, one for one. The next one is Bob Dylan, the freewheeling Bob Dylan, the withdrawn version stereo. So a rare U.S.-only version that had four extra songs on it. The original release was retracted. They include rare versions of Rocks and Gravel, Let Me Die in My Footsteps, Gambling Willie's Dead Man's Head, and Talking John Birch Blues, and they got replaced by other songs. So there's only two known two stereo copies that are known to exist, and less than 20 mono copies. So I'm saying it sold for $40,000. I think that's over. That is over. Do you know how much it actually sold for? I thought it was like thirty-eight or something. Very close, just about, about thirty-five thousand. Very good. Okay. All right. Uh, the next record is Frank Wilson. The song is "Do I Love You?" Indeed, I do. And it's a nineteen sixty-six ultra rare, ultra rare Northern Soul forty-five. There's only two known copies, and my price is thirty-two thousand. I think that's over. That's actually under. It sold oh, wow. for okay. thirty-seven thousand in two thousand nine. Next one is The Sex Pistols, God Save the Queen, the canceled single. This single was pulled and all the copies were destroyed, or most of the copies were destroyed by AM Records. About six, they lasted about six days on the label. Apparently, Sid Vicious cut his foot when he was at their offices and just bled all over, and that was enough for them. So, there are nine copies of this known to exist. So, my price for the uh, God Save the Queen canceled single is 12000 I think that's under. That is under. The actual price, it goes for, it goes for around 18000 
18,000. Okay. Wow, you're good at this. Do you have any of these? Okay. Um, <laughs> if you had any of these, like that Northern Soul single that you mentioned, would you ever play it? I don't know. I mean, I'd probably at least put it on YouTube. Okay. I would... Well, we'll get we'll get back to that. There's a story about okay. that. Okay. Okay. All right. This next one is actually something you've kind of mentioned before. The fifth record is Long Cleave Reed and Little Harvey Hole, the original Stackley Blues, and this is on uh, a 1927-78 on Black Patty Records, which we've talked about on the Great 78s. Seventy-five thousand dollars is my price for you. He got that for a lot less, and he's never sold it. That's correct, but he he's had an offer on it. Oh, okay, okay. I think the offer was maybe fifty thousand. So I'll say that that's high. Yeah, you're right. It is over. It, uh, I said seventy five thousand. The actual price he did not sell it. It's priceless to him. But the actual price that he was offered, or so he says, was seventy thousand. And, and you're okay. right. Collector Joe Broussard, who you've mentioned, says he's yeah. had multiple offers, but the highest has been about seventy thousand. Uh, number six is the Wu Tang Clan with Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. One copy was made of an incredibly rare recording session. Uh, it's popularly seen as a publicity stunt. So my price for you is $1.5 million. I think that's over. I thought it was just a million. Incorrect. It's actually under. It oh, was wow. Okay. actually sold for about $2 million. Okay. It was purchased by uh, infamous pharma bro Martin, what do you say, Scarelli? He, he bought it in 2015 with the legal agreement that it could only be sold commercially after the year 2103. So, like you've been saying, does he play it out? He's played it in small clips, like on social media, and he apparently he's played it at parties. They say that share guest stars on some tracks, but I don't know if people have heard enough to, to know that's true. But apparently, they're trying to make him forfeit the album due to his uh, fraud scheme convictions. So, very good. The uh, next one is the Velvet Underground and Nico Acetate. This is found for 75 cents in a bargain crate in front of a New York City uh, record shop has alternative early versions of the classic record. This is the only copy known to exist. I'm going to sell it for 45000 I think that's under. It's actually over. Um, oh, really? False bids wow. went that high on eBay. The, the guy who found it tried to sell it on eBay, but he actually ended up selling it for about 25000 So Okay. I remember when that went up on eBay and I went to look at it and it was at like 100000 But uh, yeah, nobody... Actually Nobody paid. actually paid that. Yeah, yeah he get, yeah. he got a lot of false yeah. bids. Um, the yeah. most serious one they said was about forty five thousand, but he actually ended up getting rid of it for twenty five thousand, which is still a twenty four thousand nine hundred ninety nine and a quarter <laughs> investment. So, the last one is the Beatles White Album with the serial number zero 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 one. It was originally owned by Ringo. My selling price is nine hundred fifty thousand dollars. I think that's under. That's actually over two. It sold for $790,000, sold at auction. That's the highest price forever for uh, just a regularly commercially released record. Got off to a good start, but I really kind of took a dive at the end there. Yeah, it's it's not something. I know you're not shopping for these too often. It was mostly just a fun way to talk about really, really expensive records. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and I think it's time for your quiz. Okay. For today's audio quiz, I'm going to go ahead and just play six audio clips, about 10 seconds or less, of um, instrumental introductions to songs. And all I want you to do is name the song and the artist. Okay. Sounds okay. easy enough. All right. Here we go. Track one... Two. Track three. 
four. Track five. Track six. All right, what do you think? Yeah, I've got several of them for sure. Uh, there's a couple I have guesses on, but okay, they're all pretty fun songs. Yeah, yeah, I like them. I guess that's probably why I chose them. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, I think it's on to our uh, turntable talk. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind If you found this podcast and listened this far, chances are you love music. Probably you love collecting records. The dusty fingers, the musty cardboard smell, the quiet judgment of the bespeckled gentleman wearing a Bauhaus shirt behind the counter. Kneeling down, searching milk crates, seeking diamonds amongst the wasteland of Herb Albert, Barbara Streisand, and Andy Williams. We seek these moments of discovery, sometimes at garage sales, thrift shops, flea markets, but most importantly, at record stores. Urban sociologist Ray Oldenburg argues that communities need third places for happy, healthy individuals to thrive in a vital and democratic society. Coffee shops, bars, gyms, barbershops, bookstores, and other places between work and home where people gather by choice. Record stores provide the perfect solace for the music nerd, a finely curated bazaar of auditory oddities, a place where a community organically flocks, where obsessions and idiosyncrasies are tolerated, if not appreciated, where very specific types of learning and teaching keep people engaged, talking, and social. Every subgenre of music misfit is welcome. Just being in a place where music is the priority can be redemptive. There's a feeling of normalcy for spending hours debating the pros and cons of Brian Eno's departure from Roxy Music, or if Graham Parson gave Keith Richards the song Wild Horses as thanks for room, board, and heroin in France, or what the hell and who the hell Leonard Cohen is crooning on about in Famous Blue Raincoat. Whereas the rest of the world passively listens to music, whatever's packaged and sold to them by people in business suits and obnoxiously artificially chipper disc jockeys, music is the lifeblood of the record shop and their oft-fanatic patronage. Speaking of which, those three discussions I mentioned just a second ago, they were real-life, multi-hour conversations Joe and I had in our first few months of friendship as we worked the late shift at the CD store in Boulder, Colorado. Record stores are connections, memories, acceptance, survival. Superlative songstress Nico Case perhaps expressed it best by saying, Indie record stores were the only music teachers I ever had. The world would be a dark and lonely place without them. So why is a day to celebrate these beacons of musical integrity under such attack? I find that most record nerds like to bash Record Store Day as a consumerist shit show that will ultimately end up eating its own tails. Today's turntable talk will examine the Record Store Day as both an effective celebration of independent music and self-destructive cannibalism. Or maybe, just like the force, a little bit of balance is needed to make the whole thing successful. The vinyl record medium was dead on arrival by the early 90s. The once grand and glorious format had a toll taken on it by cassette tapes for some time, but the coup de grace was the development and prevalence of the compact disc, which surpassed sales of their ancestral cylinders by 88. In 93, vinyl records accounted for a meager 300,000 units in the U.S. In many ways, the post-vinyl years of the 90s and early aughts were a golden age for Gen X record collectors. Used vinyl was almost given away. 
I remember buying the entire Led Zeppelin catalog, Zepp 1 Dakota, for about 25 bucks in one trip. I similarly procured the Bruce Springsteen collection Up to Tunnel of Love for less than half the cost of buying the river new these days. Joe would find multiple pristine copies of On the Beach for 99 cents each and buy them and give them away to people because not enough people knew about this amazing album, which at the time hadn't even been released on CD. Heck, even new records were cheaper than than new CDs by a good bit. For this reason, vinyl maintained a small, dedicated base that could float record store institutions, even as the format seemed to be ghosting away at an incredible rate. The virtues of vinyl were, then as they are now, eternal. The process of finding, playing, and experiencing the music are more of an active personal event, holding that 12-inch square, the warmth and the sound, the snaps and crackles, and even the dreaded skips that make each disc unique, like a snowflake or a DNA strand. You learn them, you expect them, you might even welcome them. It's a pure format, and one that has an inexhaustive bounty to uncover. You know, like bottomless fries. Vinyl, even on life support, always had a heartbeat. And as record stores grasped for relevance and income, the dedicated vinyl cultists began to plan. They believed in their medium and wouldn't see it go the way of the telegraph, eight-track, floppy disc, or pager. Records would never be the horse and buggy of recorded sound. Records were better than that. They were cooler. They were stronger. They were transcendent. They just needed to rally the troops. And when summoning nerds, freaks, misfits, and geeks, where better to look than a record shop? A simple email sent out in July of 2007, in a hurry before a lunch break, was the inception of Record Store Day. A guy named Chris Brown, who worked in marketing for Bull Moose Records, sent an email to a friend. The subject line, idea. The body of the missive read, Now on to Indie Record Store Day. It needs a different name, of course. I'm thinking just as I type, but it could be a national event that drives people to indie stores. We would need all coalitions, not just the ones we usually work with, plus all unaffiliated indies. The email, remarkably fleshed out, at least for a quick email, Brown suggested holding it during slow months, selling special releases, having in-store performances, pressing the importance to the media about independent stores, and even using celebrities to draw attraction to the event. The idea was brought up at a brainstorming session by record store owners and employees in Baltimore. The concept was somewhere between creating a record shop-centric slogan like the Give the Gift of Music was in the 80s, and having an event like Free Comic Book Day that brought people and publicity to the stores. The group finally settled on its mission, according to their website, a day for people who make up the world of the record store, the staff, the customers, and the artists, to come together and celebrate the unique culture of a record store and the special role these independently owned stores play in their communities. Due to a strong coalition of record stores that had been bonding together since the mid-90s, the first Record Store Day was an instant success. April 19, 2008, was the inaugural Record Store Day. It was held at about 300 stores nationwide. Metallica, certainly fond of having people purchase their physical media, opened ceremonies with a show at Rasputin Music in San Francisco, and Billy Bragg, who's pretty much the anti-Metallica, helped kick off festivities in the UK with a live performance. The basic concept of the first Record Store Day carries on today. Local record stores throwing many parties with DJs and live bands, both of national and local importance. Giveaways, cookouts, parties, meet and greets, autograph hounding opportunities, parades, and whatever one might imagine. The strength of the day, initially at least, was in the freedom and how to celebrate and the ability to infuse each store's unique culture and conditions into the holiday. Then, of course, there were the special releases, but we'll get to that in a moment. Record Store Day as an institution grew. 
vastly. From the 10 releases in 2008, there are over 500 releases to sift through and fight over now. About 1,400 record stores on six continents participate. In 2009, Jesse Boots Electric Hughes from the Eagles of Death Metal, which is such a horrible band name, declared himself the Record Store Day Ambassador. Since then, a head-scratching assortment of artists have signed up to be musical figureheads and advocate for the event and records in general. Ambassadors have been Josh Home, Iggy Pop, Chuck D, Ozzy Osbourne, St. Vincent, Metallica, and Jack White. You can't say that he doesn't take his role seriously. He owns record studios, record stores, and now a record pressing plant in Detroit. This year, the ceremonial title goes to the hip-hop duo Run the Jewels. It's fair to say Record Store Day is huge. I mean, certainly to the stores, which see a giant increase in sales on the event day. A record store owner and friend once told me that RSD is like the Christmas season in six hours. She said that the day helped her store immensely survive slow months, at least for the first few years. As important as the giant one-day sale is, though in fairness, Record Store Day has branched out to include more events throughout the year, including a Black Friday Record Store Day with more releases. The most critical message is that vinyl is not dead, and the record store is not going anywhere. It will adapt, evolve, and remain forever relevant. The mission statement has been effective, at least relatively. Vinyl has been growing steadily for the past 12 years. In 2017, over 14 million LP records were sold in the U.S. Remember, we were at 300,000 just 25 years ago. But that doesn't mean there aren't issues. First, this isn't exactly a phoenix rising from the ashes, more of a canary not yet dead in the coal mine. Though vinyl sales are growing, they started at basically nothing. Vinyl still only accounts for about 6% of album sales to CD sales 50% and digital album purchases at 44%. And, of course, all these 148 million CDs, digital downloads, and records are dwarfed by the 377 billion streams. Second, where's the money going? As vinyl gets more mainstream, so do its biggest sellers. A look at the top 10 records from last year, you'll see Beatles, Guardian of the Galaxies 2, and La La Land soundtracks, Michael Jackson, Pink Floyd, Fleetwood Mac, Ed Shireen. These are hardly indie darlings, which relates directly to the controversies that seem to be overtaking the perceived benefits of Record Store Day. The first major kerfuffle is the involvement or even control of major labels in the selection of Record Store Day releases. Though the Record Store Day website boasts that 60% or more of the Record Store Day official release list comes from independent labels and distributors, many small labels feel left out in the cold. These labels, unaffiliated with the organization, feel that Record Store Day is a distraction with gimmicks and unsubstantial releases from major money-making artists that take away from the actual artists who need the press and sales. Shops might not want to buy as much regular stock to save precious funds for the ability to get as many Record Store Day only releases as possible. The Record Store Day owners counter this by saying that the event really focuses on the stores, not the labels. But that certainly seems short-sighted and another frustrating case of follow the money. Remember who I said is making most of the sales from these new vinyl records. A couple of UK indie labels, Howling Owl and Sonic Cathedral, made a scathing statement about Record Store Day by releasing a small run of 365 of a, sit of a split single. They're only releasing one copy of the single a day. A letter explaining the stunt said, If it's a protest against anything, it's what Record Store Day has become. Just another event in the annual music industry circus co-opted by major labels and used as another marketing stepping stone. They wanted to say, because of the rules and regulations, Record Store Day really isn't fun, and it's certainly not beneficial to small labels. They further say this major label hijacking spills over into the business doubly with delaying their small label releases getting into the stores. 
Currently, there's only about 25 record pressing plants in America. Creating a vinyl run is time consuming. The management of releases can put huge stressors on the ability for records to be released on time. Think of how many times you've been waiting on an album only to see its release day get pushed back again and again. More often than not, that's a record press issue. So when 500 deadlined albums come up, other releases get sent to the back of the line. Not just small releases get pushed around either. The War on Drugs, whose album Lost in the Dream, was one of the top 10 selling vinyl records of 2014, but it also suffered delays due to pressing plant issues. The label said that the album did amazingly well, surprisingly well, and that though they put in for a stock repress order in a tight but normally reasonable amount of time, record store day releases got priorities that meant for seven weeks this hot-selling record was totally sold out, killing sales momentum. I guess the silver lining is that more vinyl factories are on the way. One can argue that these delays, though inconvenient and unfairly tipped against the small guys, are a good sign of life for the health and recovery of vinyl. In a sense, so is this next controversy. In a society that has so many silly fake holidays, it can be hard not to see Record Store Day as another made-up day designed to make us buy shit. Heck, look at all the similar days celebrated in April. Peanut Butter Jelly Day, Submarine Day, Good Job for Pooping Day, which we assume are for kids and the elderly, Beer Day, Hug a Plumber Day, Garlic Day, Talk Like an Emu Day, and of course, Lima Bean Respect Day. Okay, we may have made up a couple of those, but most of those are totally real. Our addiction to honoring these pseudo-feast days devalue the significance of all the things plainly ridiculous, or ridiculously plain. Is that how we want the vinyl record to be viewed? I'm sorry, that's just the Andy Rooney coming out. I also have the eyebrows to match that. Furthermore, it can be hard to stomach the consumerist charge into the stores to grab intentionally, arbitrarily collectible materials. It doesn't feel right. As much as I'd love that Dylan and the Band alternative basement tapes triple album that was hand-stamped and numbered by Garth Hudson, I'm not going to push or trample a human being to get it as if it's some Cabbage Patch doll. Instead, I watch someone, a stranger to the store I love, who cares nothing about the record, rush in and buy it so he can flip it on eBay for an extra 20 or 200 bucks. Again, it doesn't feel right. Doesn't match the spirit. I've heard of record stores making customers open their freshly purchased treasures in front of them to kill the potential eBay appeal and value, but forcing adversarial transaction with the customer sure doesn't seem great for the process either. Ultimately, I don't have an answer for the capitalist machine and the asshole flippers. I doubt this is the intention of Record Store Day's founding fathers, but it's the reality we live in. Perhaps the most troubling and counterproductive result is what the event can do to record stores, particularly the smaller ones, that it claims to celebrate and honor. Certainly not all independent record stores are equally independent. There are stronger, bigger stores that might not be part of some corporate conglomerate, but still have massive capacity, credit, and capability to take on the lion's share of the special releases. They leave the leftovers for the smaller stores. Pairing that with an incredibly staunch no-return policy that forces small store owners to go out on a limb for purchases and can fray already stretched thin lines of credit. The same record store owner who declared the event a mini Christmas said years later that she got many of the unloved garbage releases that would sit unsold at ridiculous prices. She'd end up slashing the prices and taking a loss or just having them gather dust. Another question is, what actually is the lasting effect of the record today on creating new vinyl buyers? Sure, one could surmise that the uptick in purchases is a positive effect, but I've yet to see any evidence that increased shopping for these events fuels a vinyl fever that creates new regulars for stores, increasing sales perpetually. There very well may be newbies born during record store day. There may not be. It's certainly a question worth investigation. Finally, there are the records themselves. Taste varies, and I think Record Store Day does a fine job of catering to a diverse range of genres and aesthetics. 
Every year, I usually identify at least two or three releases I would love to have, and a handful that would seem like they'd be great. But certainly, there is an overbloatedness and with the release and the kitschy picture disc 10-inch or the vapid novelty releases or the 200-gram glow-in-the-dark periwinkle-colored version of a normally bargain bin fodder or even the ridiculous fetishist box sets. The Flaming Lips are releasing a record filled with pink beer. Seriously. Much like we discussed in the colored vinyl episode, the goofiness of Record Store Day releases can be fun, but ultimately the substance is what matters. It can all feel meaningless, meaningless with astronomical price tags attached to them. The manufactured rarity just pushes the overall ickiness of some of the releases. Is this the best we can do? In my own experience, I always find something I liked, or even that I requested from the owner who was kind and brave enough to order it. But I can't say that I've ever been fulfilled in a way that, like I am when I find a great copy of a rare record that I've been looking for for years. Much of these arguments are not necessarily an issue with just Record Store Day or even Independent Record Store. Much of these issues are an issue with our consumerist system and the collect-or-die mindset of the vinyl community. Numerous stores choose not to participate or participate without releases or even hold anti-Record Store Day events. And that's their right. And even if they miss the windfall from RSD, some some will shop there just because they stand up for what they believe. Ethos sells too. Me personally, I'd like to see a balance. I'm fine with the releases, even the stupid ones. Far be it from me to tell people how to spend their well-earned cash. And the additional boost of income is huge, but record stores deserve recognition. They are vital. They deserve my money and yours, but they need support all year. Gimmicks are fine if the core message isn't lost. I've had fantastic times at Record Store Day. I've also had more fantastic times at just regular days hanging out at a record store. By all means, support Record Store Day, or don't, but definitely support record stores. They might need a new sort of Record Store Day, or maybe a more mindful version. How great would a community-run record store be? Or record stores that set up a CSR, a community-supported record program, like small farms have CSAs, where we pay into a store like a membership and then enjoy special benefit and releases, like much like some labels have clubs to join to support future endeavors with less risk. These are just ideas, and I know someone out there has better ones. Those behind RSD, the founders, marketers, artists, labels, stores, and customers cannot be complacent that don't just keep on keeping on, keep evolving and keep creating more room and taking up more and more of the pie, whatever it takes. Just don't forget the heart and don't forget what makes us a community. Certainly, if the vinyl movement is going to have another renaissance, stores, labels, record store day, and vinyl buyers should be on the same page. But ultimately, I'm not sure if I care that much. Records will still be there and the record stores we love will still be there. And as long as we don't give up, I'll be buying records just like I have for 20 years and like my father before me. So, long live physical media. That said, are you going to be going anywhere special for Record Store Day? Well, I said a few episodes ago that my local record store went out of business. So, I probably won't. There's a couple I could drive to in bigger cities, but I'm just not sure there's a release that's worth the time and energy it takes to go get that I really want. There's a few online stores that kind of do pre-sales, which is a really cool thing and really helps eliminate some of those awful things we talked about. So I might look into some of those um, some of those record store day releases that way, but I'm not sure I'm going to be going anywhere, which kind of feels icky. Bull Moose, by the way, the company you mentioned, that, or the record store that you mentioned that started that, they are amazing to deal with online. So just a little shout out to them. I've only had great experiences ordering things from them. So if anybody cares to do that, their prices are really low 
over 30 bucks, you get free shipping. Um, and we are not paid to say that. Well, I think one of the things is it is fun to go to record store day to see some people like there's a couple guys I see only at record store day. I don't hang out with them, but they always came to record store day when it, well, at least when it was happening. And it was great to talk with them and find out what they were getting and what they were interested in. And I mean, we're not friends, but like we still can kind of share that common bond. And that was one good thing where record store day at least brought people together. But at the same time, it, it got to be just so hard to to deal with that initial rush to get the releases. It's just not what I want to do. I don't like the crowds, and I personally prefer going to a record store where I might have when I might have like an idea of what I want to get, and then I see a bunch of things that I had no idea I even wanted or had forgotten about. Rather than fighting through a crowd for something that I might not even have luck in finding, they because they do now have um, not only is would there be limited for each store if the store even ordered it, but they'll also have regional records, so you don't even know if your store is going to have a chance to get something. something. Right. And like I said, the smaller stores, like the store I had was very, very small. And so it seemed like every year they got less and less things that I might like. And there was more and more stuff that was just like, just not as, not as quality. But I mean, that just might be what's getting put out there. It does seem like every limited release does within six months get released. Maybe it's maybe on a black vinyl version rather than a colored vinyl version, but it does end up getting released. Usually. Yeah, a lot of things do, yes. Yeah, yeah. I guess the ultimate message, and I'm not trying to knock Record Store Day, I was trying to give a real balanced perspective, but I think the thing to remember is like, I think the heart of it has to still be there. It's we need to support record store day and we need to support record record shops. But like, if it's not fun, if it's kind of hurting the independent labels that it should be helping, we might need to just rethink how it all works. The flippers are, I, I hate those scumbags. I hope, I just don't like seeing them and seeing what they're doing. They're the worst part of it for me. The, yeah, that that Garth Hudson record I mentioned, that was a totally true thing. There was two of them. He grabbed both of them. Well, he grabbed... He grabbed one and his, whoever he brought grabbed one. And he was talking in line about going to put them on eBay, you know, that day. I mean, it was very, it just, it kind of breaks your heart. And I don't even care. It's not, you know, any record I can live without. I'm not dying because I don't have a basement tapes alternative record. But at the same time, it just made the whole thing kind of not fun. Like you were saying in the beginning, it should be a way of bringing people together in a, as a community rather than a free-for-all fight. Right. And I mean, you know, I know some record stores do grab one. Some record stores, like I said, open, make them open it. You know, I don't really like stores having to tell consumers how to buy things either. That's not their place either. That's not what I'm saying. It's just... It's a hard thing to balance. I do like it when record stores are adversarial, but only <laughs> like when people are buying Billy Joel records. Right, right. I mean, I think that's that's kind of their duty as gatekeepers. I think that's it for turntable talk, and let's listen to some songs. Our first song today is by a band called Plush, also known as Liam Hayes and Plush, also known as Liam Hayes. The song is called Three Quarters Blind Eyes, and here it is.
Plush with 1994's Three Quarters Blind Eyes. This is the A side of a single released by Drag City Records. Liam Hayes is an incredible musician and songwriter from Chicago. I first learned about him through Will Oldham singles and albums, which I'm obsessive about collecting and have been for since the mid 90s. He plays piano, organ, and guitar on Hope, Viva Last Blues, and he's on a few of the songs on the collection released as Lost Blues and other songs. He's just all over that early stuff. A lot of other Drag City things, too, I believe. From 94 to 97, Hayes released two singles and not a single full-length album, which is depressing because he could have just put out so many great things. In 98, he recorded and released his first full-length album called More Becomes You, and since then, he's released four total albums and scored a soundtrack for a Roman Coppola film. He's often compared to Brian Wilson, uh, which makes some sense as far as the melodies go, but I personally find that he has a lot more in common with Harry Nilsson. I think his voice is a little bit more similar. Everything about his songs, orchestration, and production is pretty much in exactly the same way as Nilsson. He just seems to make all of his songs just right. And I, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I love that song. It's, it sticks in my head, and it, it feels like one of those songs that's just always been there. All right, it's time for my first song. This is a band called Pre, and the name of the song is Girl.
That was Pre, spelled P-R-I-X, with Girl, which was a single that came out in 77 on Orc Records. Pre is a great lost power pop band, and they're kind of a super group, but kind of not. So they're a very interesting story. They're fronted by these two guys, John Tiven and Tommy Hone, and they were a studio-based band, but they hung out with classic Memphis uh, popsters, uh, Big Star, both Chris Bell and Alex Chilton, and the, the some of the studio guys, Jim Dickinson, helped record their songs and were very involved in the band. But it was mostly those two guys. Um, they recorded this uh, studio-based stuff, and they never landed a major major label deal. They only issued one EP, which was on the New York label Orc Records, which has all sorts of great stuff on it, weird variety of stuff. And they also issued a single on Miracle Records, which was a big collector's items in the power pop underground circuit. They sound a lot like Big Star. They sound, to me, more like Chris Bell with Big Star. Like it's kind of when I first heard them, I was like, "Gosh, this is this is kind of where Big Star went." Not the not the albums after Chris Bell left, or not Chris Bell solo stuff. It's just really great power pop stuff. Uh, they kind of have a little bit of Bad Finger, maybe the Raspberries, but it's not quite as clean it's a little bit more gritty the copy i have is a reissue uh, from 2016 on hozak records they reissued anything that pre-recorded and kind of put it together it's a really cool record and i just love the song I, you know power pop groups are there's lots of them and a lot of times i think they're given too much importance or too much credit just because of what they are pre is is a band that probably deserves more credit than they get. They're just fantastic. And I just don't think a lot of, know, not a lot of people know about them. So uh, I hope you enjoyed it. All right, my second song is a song called Archangel's Thunderbird, which is such a sweet name for a song. And it's by a band called Amandul 2.
right, that was Archangel's Thunderbird by Amandul 2, and that was released on their record Yeti in April 1970 on Liberty Repertoire Records. That song is just a badass, sinister, krautrock punk song. I don't really know what much to say about the actual sound of it other than it's intimidating and it's powerful and it's just a fantastic song. Yeti was their second album um, and one of the cornerstones of the krautrock movement. It, it's a weird album because the first disc of it is kind of short songs, more like kind of pop songs, and the second disc is just long improvised tracks. Renata is the, uh, the, the female singer who kind of guest vocals on this track uh, with this ominous and threatening lyrics. It's really kind of a great song. I really don't have a ton to say about it. The whole album, Yeti, is pretty good. It's very weird. But if you're into Krautrock, it's a little bit more hard-edged than some of the other Krautrock. I was trying to see if anybody had ever done a cover of it, and I came across a weird video of the Breeders doing it recently. So it's worth checking out, too. All right, our last song is by Spanky Wilson, and it is her cover of the Bobby Gentry classic, Fancy. I did what I had to 
do, but I made myself a solemn vow That I was gonna be a lady someday, though I didn't know when or how I couldn't see spending the rest of my life with my head down in shame Might have been born just a plain black girl, but fancy was my name Just a plain black girl, but fancy was my name. Was my name, y'all? It wasn't long after a benevolent man took me in off the street, and one week later I was pouring his tea in a five-room hotel suite. I'm John the King, a congressman and an occasional aristocrat. Now I got me a Georgia mansion and an elegant New York townhouse flat. Now I ain't done bad. No, I ain't. They call me fancy. What's my name? Now in this world, there's a lot of self-righteous hypocrites that will call me bad. And criticize my mama for turning me out no matter how little we had. Desperation in my poor mama's voice ringing in my ear. Here's your one chance, fancy, don't let me down. Oh no, no. Here's your one chance, fancy, don't let me down. Lord, forgive me for what I do. But if you want out, well, let's talk to you. Now get on out, girl. Your mama's gonna move you uptown. That was Spanky Wilson with Fancy from her 1970 album, Let It Be, released on Mother's Records. This album is in dire need of being reissued. Uh, it hasn't been at all, so it's very, very hard to find. The copy I have, as you as you heard, is, is not in the best condition. Wilson released four albums from 1969 to 75. Let It Be is the third one of those, and the last one released on Mother's Records. Her fourth album was released on Eastbound Records, a subsidiary of Westbound, and has a much different, almost disco-y, jazzy sound to it, while the first three are just like this. They're all real soul, great voice albums. Wilson started playing in clubs with Stanley Turrentine and then Jimmy McGriff when she was only 17 years old, and she went on to sing backup for people like O.C. Smith and Lou Rawls. She sort of disappeared for a while. She moved to France. And she came back and recorded another couple albums in the 90s. And then in 2005, she recorded some singles and a full album called I'm Thankful uh, with Quantic Soul Orchestra. If you know Quantic Soul Orchestra at all, they're kind of that neo-soul sound. It's, it's great. Fancy, the song by Bobby Gentry is obviously, hopefully, you know what it's about. It's about an 18-year-old girl with a young, very young sibling and a terminally ill mother living in dire poverty. (laughs) The mother encourages Fancy to use sex to gain her independence and freedom. She does, and by the end of the song, she has a mansion in Georgia and a penthouse in New York City, so all works out really well for her. (laughs) 
it's a very strange song. And that's those are our songs for the day. All right. I think we just have a little bit of trivia to tie up. I'm going to go ahead and play those tracks again. All I need from everybody is the name of the song and the artist. And all you have to work with are up to 10 seconds of the instrumental intro for each of these. All right, here we go. Track one. Track two. Track three. Track four. Track five. And track six. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. All right. I think I've got the uh, first three dead to rights. The first one, I think, is No Children by the Mountain Goats. Yes. Right? The second one is one of my favorite songs of one of my favorite albums. It's Farewell Transmission by Magnolia Electric Company. Wrong. It's Songs of High at that point. The album was Magnolia Electric. That's how I was planning on getting you. Oh, well, All I right. fell right into that trap. <laughs> what, a, yes. what a jerk. All right. The next one, is, you, though, technically correct. Okay. The next one is Books About UFO by Husker Du. Yep. Okay. The fourth one I don't know. My guess is that it's James Brown with Cold Sweat. It's James Brown, but with Think. Um, and then the fifth song, I'm confident on the artist. And I, I, I know it's the first track off that record. I just don't know the name of it. It's got a weird long name, but it's Betty Davis. It is. It's If I'm in luck, I might just get picked up. Yes. Or yes. I just might get picked up. Yeah, it's great. And the last song is Liz Fair with the divorce song. Perfect. That is it. I think you, you got all of them right in some way. So fantastic job. Very Hope good. everybody else did too. It was a, it was a pretty straightforward one. I yeah. Think. Yeah. I appreciate that from once in a while. All really good songs. Good, good. I hope everybody out there liked them. Well, it is going to be Record Store Day in a few days, uh, if you're listening to this when we release it. Uh, so go out and go ahead and splurge. That pink beer record, you deserve it. Get it. It's going to help the Flaming Lips. It's going to help your record store. It's going to help the world. Probably, pro- who's it, Dogfish Head, who, who does all the beer stuff for Record yeah, Store they, Day? They put out a really cool Will Oldham single with a 12-pack of beer or something. Yeah. It, yeah. It's hard to get, though, right? You had to, like, get it at the brewery. Yeah, you had to get that one at the brewery, and it, you had to buy, I think, a 12-pack or a case of beer, too, and there were very, very few of them. Yeah, I think, I don't think there's a lot of these Flaming Lips. Anyways. Go get yourself a record. For all that we talked about, it is super important that you support your record stores and just show them some love and how much you you appreciate them and care. It probably means a lot to them, too, to see people who support the record stores day in and day out. But also support the small labels, support the artists, go to shows, uh, do what you can. And uh, Joe, what do you got? Don't be a flipper and go to record stores on other days as well and go on our facebook page join our facebook page and tell us what releases you're looking forward to i haven't seen a whole lot i kind of i glanced at the list but i haven't really paid a lot of attention to it but i did see one of the feely side projects 
uh, re-release. I think it's the Wegulu, but it might be the other one too, the Young. Um, either way, I'm looking forward to that one and I probably want to go through back through that and see some other ones too. I'm sure there's some good stuff. But let us know on there or on Twitter what albums you're thinking about getting, if any, what you like or don't like about it. And please go to iTunes if you can. Write a review. We have a few up there. Five stars would be awesome. Whatever you guys think is fair and then add. Um, but the, writing a review, that's a really big deal. It'll really help other people get to the podcast, find it, and listen, and hopefully enjoy it. All right. Everybody, I hope you have a wonderful day. We'll talk to you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.